0: Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world to the EdTech Situation Room, episode 258 for May the 4th, 200, 200, the year 200, B.C., 2022. My name is Wes Fryer. I am coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we are having a very exciting weather evening. Actually, I may be looking at the radar periodically. We've had several tornadoes east of town and... It's just one of those spring nights in Oklahoma. Um, but I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School, a.k.a. 5th and 6th grade media literacy teacher and 6th grade advisor, just for one more month, which is a bit crazy to realize because May is upon us. But I am joined, as always, by someone who really knows what he's talking about because he's been formally commissioned and knighted the EdTech Guru of the North, he goes in his day job by the name Jason Knifer. We just know him as EdTech Yoda of uh, the Northern Latitudes. Welcome, Jason.
1: Well, hi, Dr. Fryer. Indeed, I am here. I am Jason Neifer. Um I prefer to think of myself as the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana's state virtual school located on a beautiful University of Montana campus right here in 72 degree missoula montana the weather is so lovely here and for those that are uh, others in northern states uh, you know what i'm talking about because uh in fact i i saw at least in montana that it was the cold or the snowiest april in a long 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 time and usually uh some montanans complain about about late winter snow and usually my answer to that is is that you live in montana so you're going to have to get used to that but in this particular case i think people's complaints were were, were pretty legit so um, happy to be here. Dr. Fryer, what is this podcast all about?
0: Well, we are a almost weekly podcast that will talk, take a look at the recent technology news and try to discuss them through the lens of education. So we're looking for patterns and trends, things that impact schools, things that school leaders need to be thinking about. Also, sometimes some things that just as consumers and citizens that we need to uh, think about and consider and we're just trying to make sense of them and it actually is what do you say the name of this podcast is we're a buddy podcast or something yeah like that? it's
1: a, a buddy co- podcast it could be also be kind of a panel podcast um okay. uh, yeah so i guess we're ed tech buddies dr fryer
0: there you go and and we've only been doing this for you know 250 uh 57 prior episodes so uh, we do want to encourage everybody to check out our show notes. You can find those at edtechsr.com slash links or just click the links at the top. Um, follow us on Twitter. Um, that's where we will let you know about changes to our schedule, which will, by the way, I'll mention this again, include next week. We will we will be off next week, uh, but then we will be back again the following week on Wednesday. And we will be making a change at some point uh in the summer. It may May not happen until July or August, just depends on when the old move to North Carolina happens, but we will be moving an hour earlier with our schedule. So tonight's topics on our Google Doc, which we did have to break up into two pieces a while back, but we have episodes, uh, what, 201 on. Uh, The the first 199 episodes are on on a different Doc, but the topics are Apple, Google, Microsoft, Tech Correction, Personal Technology, Privacy, Creator World miscellaneous, and then we'll wrap it up with our Geeks of the Week. So, um, I get, you did a great job culling some of the, I think, interesting links that we have skipped in past weeks, which you can do actually now that we're basically bolding links in the doc as we talk about them, and then we're sending that out as a sub-stack, both the links that we do discuss during the show and the ones that we don't. So, sign up at EdTechSR com if you're interested in that free resource, which at some time will be monetized and bring Jason and I countless told riches and allow us to retire, you know, to some undisclosed Caribbean location uh, and simply continue the podcast, but that date remains elusive and we're not going to, you know that on when that will actually happen. Where would you like to start, Dr. Neifer, with tonight's discussion? Well,
1: uh, lots of interesting tech news uh, from the last couple of weeks in the various uh, camps we talk about, Apple, Google, and Microsoft. So let me start with a couple of quick um, Microsoft uh, uh, pieces of news. And one of them I thought was interesting in part because of I, I know there are some tech directors in our audience um, but uh uh this is an article from a few weeks back from Tom's guide that talks about how Windows 11 is getting a really uh, big security upgrade and we haven't talked about Windows 11 much in part because um uh Dr. Fryer doesn't use any Windows machines um I have a Windows laptop that I did install Windows 11 on it's been a, it's it's been decent um I uh miss windows ten uh uh a little bit at least um but the the bottom line is is that um um uh, it, it's just not my daily driver. So I haven't noticed it as much, but this Windows 11 does seem like it's a huge step forward in security. And they've been working on, on on fortifying the operating system in part, I think to catch up to where other platforms are at that uh, arguably uh, the Mac platform and the Chrome OS platform are more secure in part because they control the hardware in most of those scenarios. So there is some uh, ability there uh, to, um, Put a more secure environment into place, but there is a new feature coming, uh, called smart app control, and it's designed to, uh, prevent users from unknowingly running malicious apps on your, your, your machine. And so, uh, it sounds like a very interesting uh, piece. It's another layer of security, but one of the reasons why I want to mention this is because that, that you may or may not be able to utilize the feature in full unless you, wipe your machine and start over again so reinstall windows 11 from scratch now uh, uh for me personally i reinstall the operating system on any active uh, desktop or laptop at least every six months um, sometimes i go a year but i find that there's just so much cruft that grows it's particularly bad in windows but i've also noticed that this impacts the mac operating systems as well um so that's not a huge deal for me personally but if you're managing labs or one-to-one laptops and you have started going all in on Windows 11 and want to have what sounds like a pretty useful feature for an enterprise to have turned on, you may need to uh, completely wipe at your computer and start over again. So I just mentioned that because, uh you know, it, it Windows is by far the dominant operating system in enterprises. Uh, and if you are... Um, in that position, supporting those um, uh, types of, of operating systems, I know how frustrating that is to have things that, that don't work unless you um, uh, unless you wipe the machine. And, Wes, when you used to be a tech director, how frequently were you uh, wiping uh, uh, daily user machines?
0: Great question. That's exactly what I was going to comment on. <laughs> I just was going to do to a face-to-face conference this week in Orlando, Florida, and um, – I did particularly relish the parts that we're talking about cybersecurity and all the responsibility for the network, realizing that I am no longer responsible for all these things. But uh, we would wipe our labs, which we still had at that time, and we 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 do have, um, you know, portable a couple portable carts still, even though we're one to one with iPad in the lower school and our elementary, and then middle school with Chromebooks, uh, BYOD for for high school or upper division. Um, we had language labs and that'd just be part of, you know, the summer maintenance would be, you know, wiping those, updating those. Um, we definitely found that it was generally preferable not to be installing significant updates during the year because of dependencies and things that, that different apps would have and, and just, you know, trouble that that could cause for uh, faculty and students. Um, so it was an annual summer kind of thing, but we've mentioned this on the show before. I, I do think, um, that your idea of periodically uh, purging and completely wiping your machine is excellent advice. And it's really a lot like, you know, people say when you do a time change, which did the government vote to stop the time change or something? I think I read, I don't know if I read about that. It's just, I know Peggy in Arizona, they don't, they don't do daylight savings time, but anyway, a regular time of the year, just to trigger in your mind, Hey, I need to change my air filters in in my HVAC system. Hey, (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not quite as easy. I'm going to wipe my machine and reinstall all my software. Um, thankfully, it has become a little easier, but I've, I've helped some teachers through the years do this process and, and it can be extremely forbidding and, and scary. Sometimes it's required because you have a virus and it's just, you know, if you have a significant malware virus issue, uh, a lot of times the, the safest procedure, especially on a, on a windows machine, but this could be for a Mac too is to just completely reinstall from scratch. But sometimes people don't have the installation licenses and hardware that used to be more of an issue. I don't think that is right now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you can just download windows 11 and and create a bootable USB. Uh, and there you go. And so, um, you know, we all, we all need to have our it people in our lives, whether it's, you know, at school and work or, It's at home and many of you listening to this podcast very well may be the family IT person who has to take that kind of responsibility. So um, it's it's good to keep in mind. And I think that, you know, this is actually Microsoft sort of following in line with Apple. They made permission changes several different, several major operating system iterations ago where, and this can be somewhat painful, but you really have to be more granular in granting permissions. And for example, when you install Zoom, you have to go into the accessibility control panel. And you know if you're gonna do screen sharing, then you have to allow the specific Zoom application to be able to have permission to, to have control of the camera. And so that kind of granular permission um, is designed to raise user awareness of what systems are doing and hopefully limit and restrict what malware systems or programs are able to do and, and prevent the hijacking of, of your computer for malicious purposes. So I think this is a good thing that Microsoft is doing. Um, I don't know that schools are offering any, anything like this as like a, a parent university sort of thing, but it certainly would be kind of cool in the community for somebody to offer, you know, some, some do it yourself. Hey, bring your flash drive. We're going to install windows bootable you know, Windows 11 systems and and talk about that kind of thing. I have not heard of anybody doing that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, it is something that you just kind of need to figure out on your own. Fortunately, YouTube and the web community is very supportive as you Google for help for these kind of things. And it is possible to figure a lot of that out. But it it also is the case that many people need more handholding. But it bears reminding people of the possibility. And I'm also glad to see Microsoft... Again, following Apple and just providing downloadable versions of their OS so that you can install it. And it's not like, oh man, I don't have my, my installation CD. And then we're like, and I don't even have a CD drive for my computer anymore. I mean, things have changed quite a bit. So it's good to see Microsoft making these
1: moves. And I want to share one other quick article that may also uh, rile some tech director types. Um, this was a really interesting article from Tech Radar and, um, Joe Kalili argues that, based on the evidence available, Microsoft is probably developing Windows 12 at this point, and it, it may be a cloud-only or a cloud-based operating system. And um, I, it, when I first read this, I was envisioning, well, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of Chrome OS, right? I mean, that's it's a cloud-based operating system because. You really can't meaningfully install things locally. You can if you want an Android app. You can if you want to put Linux on your Chrome operating system, uh, a laptop or box and then run a, a Linux app. But that's for, you know, that's kind of for the super nerds, uh, and, and not for the, the, the everyday users, even power users. But that's not what this is. That Microsoft seems to be developing a version of Windows that essentially everything exists in the cloud. So it's basically streaming to you. Um, uh, via X, right, um, and then the, star- the storage is in the cloud, the computing power is in the cloud, and you could probably have a relatively modest uh, uh, laptop. And, of course, for those that have been around for a while, you may remember Thin Clients as being a way to do this, and you could run a terminal server. Uh, in fact, there was a both uh, Windows options and then also um, uh, I got my start, uh, as a kind of wannabe IT guy 15, 18, maybe more years ago, uh, installing a Linux terminal, terminal server project. And there was a K12 version of that, uh, that uh, ran around so you could create it. And I love playing with it. It wasn't really that useful to me, but I love playing with it. But I guess Wes is both an end user and, uh, as you mentioned in the past, a recovering IT director. Cloud thoughts about cloud OS, like where it's streamed. Have you ever used or managed an environment that was thin client based?
0: I've I've worked with people who have, and and talked to the evangelists of that. This is the future. This is what we all need to do. And you're right. I mean, Chrome OS is largely like a almost like a thin client environment where very little is installed on the client side, and pretty much everything's running over the web. The author of that article points out, you know. There are different views in Microsoft and some, I guess, have recently said that's not a vision for the company. Uh, you know, the, the digital divide and the fact that, as they say, connectivity is not evenly distributed across the globe. Uh, latency, just like we have with gaming, these things become issues depending upon the type of application that you're talking about and the sort of. Situation and context that you're in outages from your ISP, you know, could just take you offline and you wouldn't be able to function. And they also point out that computer manufacturers themselves, you know, justify much higher price tags on computers that have more horsepower to drive things because they're they're not thin clients Thin clients tend to be very cheap and affordable and it's essentially a monitor and you know, a computer that, that, that connects to the internet. Um, I was thinking I got to hear Gary Stager uh, give a presentation and catch up with him a little bit at this conference. And, you know, he points out that, that the Raspberry Pi at, at 25, $35, whatever uh, it's a, it's an amazingly robust computer, you know? And so if you think about like actually moving forward with the digital divide, I think it's a very exciting prospect uh, to go towards a, a cloud future. Um, but we also have to think about privacy and hacks and those kinds of things. I mentioned on the show, I'm sure over a year ago, um, he's our debate uh, coach and teacher, and and he also was on our IT team for a while. And, and he had a situation where he could take his phone and plug it in and basically like have a whole Windows OS environment at at one point um, with a keyboard and everything. And it was like, wow, that's really something to think about. You know, here's my, here's my computer that I have with me all the time. And maybe I can just jack in wherever I need to. And, you know, and have private files and my password managers and all the kinds of things that I, I need to have access to. So, um, I think it's gonna, it is definitely a part of the future. And we've talked about the importance of more secure operating systems, and finally leaving behind the legacy, especially of the the code base of Windows. And So, you know, Microsoft is continuing to move in that direction, but they've got so many legacy users, uh, enterprise users, that, you know, it, I wonder if they wouldn't have some kind of a fork that's going to allow people to still have a more traditional, you know, OS-based, you don't have to be having things in the cloud, because there still are folks that don't trust the cloud and don't want to, don 't want to embrace that cloud vision of of computing in the future, but i I think it's it 's definitely where we 've been headed, and there 's so many benefits from a management standpoint, just like with Chromebooks right hey great let 's power wash your device great let 's give you a swap I mean you absolutely can 't do that with any kind of other OS system other than a thin client that you 're working with because you have native applications to install you 've got gigabytes generally. Of, of applications and sometimes user data that you have to move to the new device because I've done that repeatedly with different people when they either get a new machine or, you know, something happens, it breaks, it's in repair, they, they need a swap. So it, when you've experienced that, the beauty of getting, and I do this on a daily basis with my, my student Chromebook that the school has issued to all of our middle school teachers, you know, something's gone wrong with the kid's laptop here, here's mine. Log in as yourself. Email help desk, just use it for the day. I mean, it is incredibly beautiful. And if we were using basically any other kind of computing device today, the the students wouldn't have the same user experience when I hand them my Chromebook as as they do with their own. And that is, it's it's an absolute game changer. So Microsoft is, is certainly understanding, or some people are understanding the power of that. And wanting to move that beyond the sort of Chromebook experience, which many people still consider to be underpowered and really not enough for the enterprise. When Microsoft embraces that and has that offer, there'll be, you know, more enterprise users. I'm sure that are going to be like, well, OK, I guess, you know, Microsoft is going this direction and that's that's where we need to go to. So, again, I think it's a it's a
1: positive. Absolutely. OK, let's see. Shall we do some Google news as well? Yeah, absolutely. Probably, my, there's a lot of interesting stories in Google the last few weeks. But the one that that, that I want to talk about because it's the most interesting to me right now is uh, The Verge had an article yesterday, and I actually noticed this um, uh, when I was playing around uh, the other day um, in the Google Docs. But Google Docs has um, an updated table structure inside of of the the online word processor that includes things like putting um, dropdown menu. Uh, uh, into things like like tables if you want to do them or to track something. And this follows the uh, uh, functionality they added a couple of months ago where you can type a code or put in an insert of a box that essentially turns a Google Doc into an email that you can send via Gmail by uh, essentially filling out the to and the subject and uh, it will send your email um, um Uh, through your Gmail that you constructed in Google Docs. So for those long, wonderful, thoughtful emails, and for those of you that work, uh, as I do, in distance learning, know there's a lot of email, and sometimes you have to be extra careful on how you engage with issues. Pre-writing in a Google Doc is is pretty great. So I thought this was a really interesting thing. And it feels like that, for at least for me, for a little while, uh, Office 365 was catching up to Google Docs and in, in some ways started exceeding Google Docs because it started adding in all the traditional functionality from Word uh, into the web-based uh, system, which I thought was very clever and, and probably the an inevitable um, uh, uh, process that Microsoft would go through with an online Office product. But it feels like that, in, at least in the last 12, 18 months, Google is innovating in in, in the doc space. And uh, I keep noticing every couple months there's new functionality. It's coming out pretty quickly. They're adding in some interesting things about the way you interact with other people on, on, on your Google domain, if you're using it professionally. Um, and I think it's a really exciting, uh, uh, process that they're going through here. So any thoughts, Dr. Fryer?
0: Super cool. I definitely think project management is a hugely important thing for us to help students have experiences with and, and use tools. I know, um, I'm thinking of, uh, Oh a friend in Maine who has worked with different project based learning tools um, and uh whose name is eluding me right now but you know some of these were licensed and things that you paid for but um, managing projects being able to to list timelines being able to track status uh anything like that that's going to to help um, you know you can have full on maybe not Microsoft Project, but but those kind of uh, Trello. I mean, there's there's a host of different tools that will help you with those kind of things. And I think that's fantastic to see Google um, integrating those. And then that's an opportunity for us as teachers, uh, even as I think about projects. You know, I did a a presentation I'll share Geek of the Week some more about. um, But it's a multi-part, multi-lesson unit that has all these different steps for students to Create and and, uh, something that helps kids keep track of where they are, what they need to have done, and then how to coordinate that with others, which we're not really doing in this particular unit. Hugely important. And that really looks helpful. Love to see this kind of innovation from Google.
1: Wonderful. Okay, some other uh, interesting Google news for your consideration of YouTube. uh, This was last week rolled out a super thanks uh, which is a way to give money to creators on YouTube. And um, I think you I'm, – I'm pretty sure you have to have a minimum number of followers uh, to be able to do that. In fact, a lot of the cool tools are turned off until you get 1,000 followers, which I think you've got well past that on your personal YouTube channel, right? I
0: went over 2,000 here in the last yeah. month or so, so yeah.
1: Um, but I think that's a really interesting thing. And, you know, I don't feel uh, I don't feel any issues with the fact that as a content creator myself with Dr. Fryer, you know, I'm not rolling in the Benjamins or anything, but, you know, I do this for something well beyond the compensation. Uh, if this was a 10, 12, 15 hour project a week instead of a couple hour project a week, I might feel differently. But I do think it's good that these platforms are coming up with mechanisms to directly compensate creators. And the reason why I like that is because it lessens the need for advertising and tracking. And the bottom line is, is that we really can't have it both ways. We can't have things for free um, uh, uh, and platforms that are free and then not expect to be advertised to. I still think there's a lot of work we could do on the uh, the privacy aspect of the advertising. The advertising is not going away. So interesting piece there.
0: Let me drop in a quick link because I literally talked to my students about this today and last week in the context of Patreon and YouTubers. Um, the link that I dropped in is Jared Haley. Have you heard of this acapella singer before, Jason? He does all kinds of covers for um, like Queen. This is the one I put in is for Imagine Dragons. He makes all the the music himself with his voice cool. and he puts himself in all these different screens. He does pirates of the Caribbean game of Thrones, just like he's amazing. And so I, I do periodically some links for my kids. We talk about the intersection of, of technology with different things. And we went to his page cause we've been talking Especially in our sixth grade class about, you know, how do we vet a source? How do we figure out who somebody is? And so we, you know, go into his YouTube page and subscribers and what does he say? But his Patreon page. And I was talking explicitly about Patreon. What is that? And some of the kids know, and this is a way of supporting. And we talked about Leonardo da Vinci. How did he do what he did in the Renaissance? These painters and artists and sculptors, right? They had sponsors, but today individuals can be sponsored by hundreds or thousands of people out there in the world who, you know, even give them small payments, but his model, and it looks like that's what this uh, super thanks tool in the YouTube studio would allow you on a per video basis. Like if somebody wanted to give you a dollar for each new video that you create. And so interesting to see YouTube, of course, wanting to capture part of that revenue stream, um, And I'm sure Patreon isn't isn't super excited about that. But I think from the creator community side, seeing more ways that creators can monetize and and more easily. (laughs) It's all about the friction, right? Frictionless giving. Yes, I'll give you a dollar every month. I mean, that's the dream of so many companies and individuals. Um, So we need to be wary of that. We've talked about tools that help us you know, mint and others keep abreast of our subscriptions and making sure we're not, you know, oversubscribed and and whatever. But I do think, and that's something that's come out of our conversations, Jason, and I haven't quite done this yet, but like Jared, maybe somebody I do want to support with Patreon. Um It's just, it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Art, the arts matter. And we have, yeah. believe it or not, amidst all the, you know, Pollution and, and darkness and negative things that we hear about technology. There, there's some really, really amazing, compelling, wonderful things that are being done and shared and created by people. And these tools are enabling folks to do that. So I did not know about that. And since I do have a few subscribers on my channel, I'm going to go into the studio and check it out. And not planning to quit my j- my day job tomorrow, but. Um, you know, I, I do get a check almost every month for about a hundred bucks, uh, from YouTube, uh, largely because of my cooking videos now, um, which I was originally going to set up another channel. And I'm like, I'm not going to spend the time to build this channel up to a thousand. I'm just putting it on my regular channel. And so anyway, it's one of these ways that I do have insight and playing with the media. Um, you know, I learn about YouTube by using it as a platform and, and seeing what can be done. And, uh it's it, it I think it helps me remain literate and more knowledgeable about the media of our time which is increasingly video as we're speaking over video today being transcribed on Facebook and who knows where we're being archived and with each word so
1: yeah well and let's just take a moment of appreciation of the fact that you get a hundred dollars a month for putting up videos primarily cooking that's just a passion and a hobby of yours and you know, I would be willing to bet that that uh, people on, ca- you know, Cable Access 7, uh, you know, 30 years ago, when that was your primary way of broadcasting, were pulling home whatever the equivalent was of, uh, you know, $100 a month uh, to be able to do that. So, you know, I I wish YouTube didn't have the problems that it did, and one of the reasons why it doesn't have the problems for me is because I pay them $10 a month to take the ads away. Um, but, uh, it's, it's still a real wonder to me. And I, I think it's, it's, uh, uh, and I personally give, I think probably seven or eight creators now a little bit of money a month through for, for right. Patreon.
0: And that's, I mean, that, all, that, that <laughs> for a long time, I hadn't taken that, gotten rid of my earlier hosting company and I was. I was paying too much and a little more than I want to admit to my wife um, <laughs> monthly for hosting, but, but that now it just about covers my hosting costs that I, that I pay for, for the, you know, 20 to 30 websites. And right. The West I'm of, calling the rest of your fact. empire. But, but as I would encourage everybody to think about who do we support? Uh, not only companies, you know, I said, we subscribe to Spotify, I support T-Mobile. There's these different companies that I'm buying services from, but I think this is a, Is a valuable cultural question for us to consider just personally, uh, in terms of because you know, just with you know, well, I'm gonna sound like an advertisement for pennies a day, you can be sustaining creators, but it's but it's true. I mean, as multiple people, you know, share a little of their wealth and 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 give money out here, it is, it's like, and I'm not saying that Jared. Uh, Hallie is Leonardo da Vinci, but he is an amazing creative guy. I mean, I, I don't know how long it takes him to edit these videos that have like 25 different screens with him doing all kinds of, of things. It's just, it's really a joy to see that kind of thing. But I think on a personal level, and it could be something that we, we find a way to talk to kids about because who knows, there's probably kids sitting in our classrooms right now. In fact, I'm sure there are. Who want to be creators of some kind. And in this new economy, yes, there's dark sides of the gig economy and whatever. And maybe you're going to need a, a spouse and significant other who's going to have healthcare insurance if you live in the United States. But, um, you know, there's, there's opportunities for creators that simply did not exist even a few short years ago and Patreon and this idea of the micro payments economy where we're able to very easily give small amounts of money Uh, as a thank you or as a, as a, I'm, I'm helping support you. It's cool. And um, I'm glad to see YouTube doing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. Uh, Google IO, which is scheduled for, I think it's the end of May. Um, And Google IO is the the annual developer conference that Google puts on. I'm sorry, it's May 11th. So it is next week. And so, They're starting to release, uh, and I believe that's mostly online, again, if I remember correctly. But um, they're going to be doing, um, or they've released the list of things that are kind of their focus areas. And on the what's new list, um, a new version of Android coming. It's Android 13. Um, uh, They, let's see, some new tool, AR developer tools, which I'm not really surprised about. Um, some new things in Google Play, which is their distribution uh, platform, and also some uh, innovation in the Chrome operating system. So excited to hear about that. They also are teasing a, quote, new era for Google Home, which um, I believe you're a Google Home user, right, Dr. Fryer?
0: We're all in with that, baby. No Amazon uh for us.
1: Yep, there you go. And um, so interesting stuff. Uh, we will definitely cover it uh, when we have an opportunity to, uh, probably two weeks from tonight, uh, we'll cover those things there. But particularly the Chrome operating system, and since we do talk about privacy and the tech, cor- tech correction a lot, I'm also curious to see what's happening with Google Home.
0: And we shouldn't assume everybody knows this and does this, but uh, the Google I.O. conference is an example of, of- – of many conferences, but it has tons of eyeballs and and Twitter users focusing on it the hashtag for that event is a great hashtag to follow to um, see what other people are, are are hearing and seeing and responding to and as a back channel uh, I think I mean Jason and I've talked in the past of someday you know meeting in person again and the google i go, Google i o conference would certainly be a cool place for us to, to rendezvous, but yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and, and I'll say this just like Apple, there are some amazing pieces of media that, that I know Google has probably already created because it's next week that they're going to be showcasing that are just fantastic and they're going to be informative and yes, they're going to be up about products and services. And this is their sales in this and whatever, but as someone who loves media literacy and digital storytelling and just communication with media, these become awesome little case studies of, wow, look at this and and breaking it down and analyzing it. And so that can be really something interesting to take a look at with students um, as well as thinking about, you know, Hey, look at the the new things that Google's brought to the table. So exciting. And um, it'll be interesting to see also how they sort of, blend the online with the face-to-face this conference um, that I attended this week in Orlando first time I've been at an event that felt normal I mean there were a few folks masking of course this was in Florida so you know it's like being in Texas Um, not not really any any kind of mask um, mandates for anything for Uber airplane mask requirements are done I flew Southwest Airlines so anyway, it'll be interesting, um, but because it really does vary by the locale, and usually they're in Northern California for this. So I'm going to predict it's still going to um, have a very strong, um, uh, you know, online and virtual experience because of COVID. But I will say, wow, it was fantastic to be back to a face-to-face conference that just it just really felt normal, and and that was super cool. So hopefully, we're all going to be. Soon in, in that kind of a boat, not that we're all leaving COVID behind. I think it's like the, the common cold and the, the seasonal flu that we've had to deal with and we still deal with every year. I'm afraid yeah. that we're probably in that category, but yay, Google IO. And thanks for the heads up. So remember folks, next week we will not have a show, but Google IO will be on. So if you're wanting some evening tech related, uh, watching, then if you don't catch it live, watching the archive, because it will You know, I'm sure stream it all on YouTube and it'll be instantly available for replay. That'll be some good stuff to check out Wednesday. And I will be doing that myself. Cool.
1: Okay. Do you want to cover that AI one before we move on? Yeah,
0: this was interesting. Uh, This is an Engadget article from May 2nd, uh, 2022. uh, And it also kind of relates a little bit to a Geek of the Week that I'll share. But the headline from Engadget is Google fires another AI researcher who reportedly challenged findings. Um, I have not... Yet watched um, the uh, Netflix documentary um, which I had just which I had just pulled up and I'm gonna have to search my Twitter for it to find um, I think it's coded bias maybe uh have you seen that before? No, I haven't okay um, I attended a session at Atlas on implicit bias um, and so coded bias on Netflix is a Documentary uh, that investigates the bias in algorithms after MIT Media Lab researcher Joy Bulami uncovered flaws in facial recognition technology. We've talked on the show about some Google AI researchers being fired, apparently, because they have findings that that Google didn't like. Which, that's really not the way science is supposed to work. (laughs) That, well, we just pay the scientists the that do the, the work that we want and, and we fire all the others. So um, the New York Times reported that um, Google's firing of, of machine learning scientist Satrajit Chattery in March soon after uh, it refused to publish a paper that Chattery and others wrote challenging earlier findings that computers could design some chip components more effectively than humans the scientist was reportedly allowed to collaborate on a paper disputing those claims after he and fellow authors expressed reservations, but was dismissed after a resolution committee rejected the paper and researchers hoped to bring the issue to CEO Sundar Pichai and Alphabet's board of directors. So there's debate about, you know, this um, termination. Um, and then, yes, the the 2020 firing was ethicist Timnit Gebru uh, and that paper that. Uh, Gebru wrote uh, led to two others following suit. And then there was a um, another uh, termination of Margaret Mitchell in early 2021. Um, in that case, Gar- Google had claimed that Mitchell violated data confidentiality policies. I mean, <clears throat> with HR things, you never, it seems like, you know, have the whole story and there's confidentiality involved and lawyers and all kinds of things. But it does appear there is an unquestioned pattern of firing that Google has engaged in. Whether some of these were legitimate, um, it just really smells bad that you're firing AI researchers that are are concluding in their papers uh, things that that may not fit into your desired worldview as a company. So. AI research is important and, and, and open and free academic research is really, really important. So I'm thankful for the journalists that can cover this and that we do have a legal system that, that allows for litigation and, and lawsuits, um, even though those things can be ugly and they're certainly not perfect. Uh, at least we have some recourse in our country for, um, you know, violations of employment law and, and things like that. So um there's also, you know, allegations of harassment and, and other things that are involved in, in here. So it's it's kind of a mess. Any, any thoughts on this, Dr. Knickson?
1: Other than, I mean, the uh, science fiction has provided us a long history of what ifs if, if we allow um, AI to get out of control. So the bottom line is, is that while, you know, those are science fiction, right, the I think we need to tread very carefully in this space. And I'd prefer if the technology was developed by people that were in a room disagreeing about it, as opposed to a bunch of people in the room agreeing about it. Because I think that makes better structures. It makes better rules of engagement. And um, uh, I think that's a really important thing uh, for human beings. So I would just say... Uh, disappointing. Um, I hope that there is actually a backstory here that has nothing to do with, with that person's job and what they were doing there, but something else that, that, that's related to where this AI thing is not part of it at all. But it is, you know, a touch suspicious.
0: Absolutely. Well, and it and it highlights ethics and the importance of talking about ethics. I, I don't know if I mentioned live on the show last week, but I've got my assignments for, um, I think I did for next next fall. And I'll be teaching two sections of robotics in addition to two sections of computer applications for middle schoolers um, and talking about uh, ethics and bias uh, and AI. These are all really important things that we, we talk about and discuss. So where would you like to go next, sir, on our list of topics, seeing that we have about 15 or 16 minutes left?
1: Sure. I guess maybe we shouldn't be surprised, but um, uh, The Verge reported on May 2nd that uh, there was a study uh, done by Mozilla um, and they have a, um, a, a guide called Privacy Not Included. The guide lead talked to The Verge and as it turns out there are two types of apps that are terrible about keeping your privacy private and it's mental health apps and prayer apps. So people looking for mental health assistance or spiritual guidance um, uh, who they themselves, uh, uh, are somehow vulnerable now are vulnerable to privacy pieces. And I just think that, man, the, the free app economy just keeps biting us over and over again. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of questions about how legit the privacy pieces are. But with Mozilla's foundation, uh, uh, uh talking about this and not just, you know, people like Apple, I think there's some legitimacy to it. Um, I will tell you that I did look at the apps uh, that were on here. I don't have any of, of them uh, currently installed. I have had a few of them installed in the past. So um, uh, disappointing that that's the, 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 that that's the kind of um, ranking that these apps look like.
0: So I'm dropping in a <clears throat> new article under privacy that I just saw right before we um, we got on the show. And we are not a political show, so we will not be delving into the Projected changes in the Roe v. Wade um, law in the United States and the imminent Supreme Court evidently change and all this stuff happening. But, you know, we've got a lot of things happening with abortion law in the United States. Consumer reports, which my parents would my mother would consider to be one of her ultimate sources uh, back in January. Actually, this was of 2020. So this is a this isn't a 2022 article. The headline is what your period tracker app knows about you. These apps are popular, but they raise concerns about what happens to the very personal data they collect. And the, the tweet that I read, you know, sharing this was saying, um, you know, if indeed um, abortions are, are outlawed and there's crazy laws that Louisiana has now about trying to say that an abortion is first degree murder, chargeable offense, and this, there's crazy stuff going on. Um, we need to be aware of the data that we're giving away. We need to be aware that everything that we share in our devices, in our phone, on our computer, all of it is hackable. Every single bit of it can be compromised and taken by bad actors. Um, we talked about on the show probably years ago, and we can say that now at 258 episodes, you know, the Chinese government hacked the Pentagon's records for the classification process, so the most intimate and and secret details about people's lives that they are required to, to to tell when they're going through a security classification process to get a secret or top secret or whatever level of security clearance for the for the U.S. government. Evidently, China hacked all that and got all of that stuff. Okay, so um, you know there there are lots of ways that apps help our lives. Um, help us to, you know, have convenience and, and, and these kinds of things. Um, there's another article. I guess I'll drop this one in too. That uh, says that there's a data broker who is selling. This is, um, let me get this. Uh, Let's well, not Consumer Reports. They're they're selling the data um, for people that have gone into a Planned Parenthood clinic. Um, and they're they're selling that to whoever uh, wants to have that. So this is a, a Vice article um, that, um, let's see, was from May 3rd. Data broker is selling location data of people who visit abortion clinics. This is why we need privacy law, ladies and gentlemen. We shouldn't have a complete open, do whatever you want. There are no laws stopping people from... Not only taking your data, but selling your data and then doing whatever they want with it. We are behind the times. I do not have today um, the answer, and I never probably will, but I'll have an opinion. Um, but but I know, because Jason and I talk about this all the time, that privacy is a big issue. It's really important. There's a lot of ways that privacy continues to be under assault, and we don't have laws protecting us in the United States um, from things like this. And so um, there's a lot going on with privacy. So, you
1: yep. the sky First is falling. I... The
0: sky is falling, Dr. Knifer. What are we going to do? <laughs> no.
1: Yeah. Story ten. 10. Um, let's see here. Oh, uh, just a kind of a cre- creator uh, woes me. Um, Facebook has announced that they are shutting down their podcast platform, um, which I, I, I guess maybe the, what I would say is that I, was surprised to hear that Facebook had a podcast platform because I just didn't know that, and we may have even talked about it on the show. But one of the things I'm always reminded of is that, uh, um, and I, and I was trying to remember what the tool was before the show, but I did go all in on a tool at one point because it was the niftiest thing ever and put probably hundreds of hours into it. Uh, this was. 2008, nine ish. And I really re- wish I remember what the tool was. And then it was announced ab- about six months after I started using it, that it was just going away. It, it, there was no financial viability for it and it was gone. Um, let alone the big platforms, that cancel stuff all the time. Google is famous for not uh, uh, following through with even popular projects. Microsoft has a bit of that rumor as well. Uh, for those of you that are still Zoom fans, uh, for example, but the bottom line is that it's uh, uh, a sad thing if you were hosting a podcast there because you're going to have to find a way to do it elsewhere now. Um, so, you know, creator, beware.
0: I want to pick up one more privacy article. Um, we actually put it under the personal technology, which it certainly fits there too. I'm going to move it down here under personal technology. This is a Lifehacker article from, from April 8th, and it's called Why You Should Buy the Dumbest. TV you can find now. At one point, and this was from um, April the uh, eighth. At one point, I I had read an article saying that it was almost, it was basically impossible to find a new television that wasn't a quote smart television that didn't phone home and report all of this data uh, to you. Um, Much like I think Dr. Neifer now is a Mac Mini user with awesome screens and and he just kind of plugs that in and hey, if it's time to upgrade, he can keep his awesome screens, he's just going to, you know, swap out a new Mac mini or or some other kind of computing device that's going to plug in. That really is the best model from a privacy standpoint for us as consumers with our televisions. Have your Roku, have your Apple TV, have your Chromecast or what or Chrome um Chromecast, yeah. What, whatever, you know, flavor you want to go with, um plug that in. Not to say that's not collecting data. There's there's data collection that's happening with with any kind of device. But, you know, the idea of your smart television having technology that you just about can't turn off or that's going to be really, really difficult to turn off, um, you know, seems invasive. So this is getting more on the... Consumer side, have you shopped for a new television recently, Doctor Knifer? And I I did put up
1: a television, uh, actually up at work, um, uh, to create uh, another conferencing station uh, in my office, uh, mostly as as kind of a COVID, uh, COVID protocol. But um, one of the things that I know from working with IT folks at the University of Montana is that they. Uh, it told us, uh, you know, we, we contacted them for recommendations twice now, uh, for, uh, kind of mounted office TVs. And, you know, these are things that have to last, uh, well, will last for a long, 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 long time, right? Uh, I would guess you know, somewhere between seven and ten years, because that's actually the, the last television that we recycled out of our office was nine years old, um, and low resolution, um, and uh very heavy too i might add but we were told that there were certain brands that they didn't want to do um and i believe they asked us i want to say um it, it's a vizio tv and there's a certain kind of vizio tv they wanted us to utilize and it does have um uh onboard software smart tv software it's not quite a dumb tv but they said that they haven't run into issues with with that brand when it comes to, you know, non-net connected televisions, not getting firmware updates or in some cases time bombing themselves out after a couple of years. And um, they said they just didn't want to deal with that. So they recommended that certain class of Vizio TV.
0: Yeah, that's good to know. Well, those are things too, like with, Consumer reports or other, you know, it could be EFF, other other groups that are going to monitor that. You know, probably, um, what's the wire? uh, A really good one for uh, wire cutter. You know, different companies that are monitoring consumer electronics and and getting that kind of advice. But it is, I mean, I, I think I've mentioned that we have firmware on some of the very inexpensive smart switches that I have installed and configured with our Google that, now are only in Chinese, and I, I need to ask our daughter next time. I finally did upgrade firmware, but it was like, wow, this really is trust because I do not read Mandarin. I have no idea what this says. Um, and when you look on your, you know, Google Nest, um, you know, was Google Wi-Fi. I guess now it's in Google Home. I mean, why are these things uploading? Like, do they really need a phone home? And, i'm um, do you remember the Mirai botnet? Yeah. <laughs> that was, I think I might have worn, uh, maybe I wore a tinfoil hat for that. show. I, I think I've done that actually before on the show. Um, but yes, it is true. Your Internet of Things devices at home can be hacked. Uh, there were a couple kids, the, one of them I think was in Alaska who, you know, de- were, were trying to devise a way to, make denial of service attacks to improve their uh, their uh, Minecraft server business. And they ended up creating this monster that was used in one of the largest denial of service attacks that the globe has ever seen before. And so anyway, as you're buying smart devices, um, you want to think about these things. And just like you said, I hadn't heard the term time bomb. Does that mean it, it would like actually... Not only not be upgradable, but it would like stop working. Is that what a time bomb would be? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, what I've,
1: I've read about such things, uh, and actually in firmware in uh, cheap firmware for IoT devices. But yeah, and I yeah. heard that was an issue, um, that TVs just weren't working anymore, um, and they were told they were, they were past their useful life. Um, yeah. and, uh, I think we also talked about that, uh, in regards to Sonos that was trying to, um, get rid of their oldest, uh, oldest hardware by rendering it useless, even though it wasn't functionally useless. Um, And, you know, it's a real issue and um, is part of the e-waste problem that we have right now with electronics around the world.
0: Hmm. Well, back to the uh, podcast platform, Facebook article that you shared. Um, I would just tell people or recommend to people, you know, finding a good place to host your podcast is important because, Companies do come and go and you end up sometimes if you're hosting stuff, you know, changing web companies. I think I've been with at least four, if not five different web host companies since, you know, 2003, uh, maybe even more than that, Um, our podcast and all my podcast content is on the Amazon cloud now on Amazon S3. It's so affordable and cheap and you can end up, you know, linking it from, from different places, but we've had some content over the years. I know cinch.fm was one of those platforms. And I'm trying to think of of some of the other ones that were these really I patio. um, I love these like audio, you know, Oh, an audio boo, which was audio boom. And now it's freaking gone. Uh, and, And I don't know. I don't honestly know how much of that content I've lost. The Internet Archive does save a bunch of things. But this is just another dynamic that we want to be aware of as far as content. Maybe at some point, and And if, with Elon's purchase of Twitter, which I know we talked a lot about in the last show, I think it'd be wonderful to have a renaissance of of champions. And I know Alan Levine and, and others are uh, part of some groups that, that really champion the self-hosting WordPress, the self-hosted, you know, website, being able to, to not just put everything on Facebook or on Twitter or on a social media account, um, where you might have actually given up rights and the extractability of that data may really be tough in terms of like, it's your data, but you know, there's not an open API or standard where you're going to be able to you know, suck that information and that data off to be able to move it and and do something else with it. So that's not something that most people are probably concerned about, but as a tech geek and somebody who loves sharing media and and publishing and sharing, there's, I'm sure people listening to this that also do, um, finding a good place to host your podcasts. And, And what I have found is having an independent, a place that's independent of your web host, um, I don't think Amazon's web services are going anywhere for a really long time. Um, Apple has definitely changed stuff with their iCloud and .mac. And I've, I've lost content actually in the past. my own fault. But, um, anyway, those are, those are important issues. And I wasn't aware that Facebook had a podcasting platform either. So yeah, maybe that's part of the reason they had to shut it down. And <laughs> nobody knew.
1: Yeah. Cause no one knew. And I, if people are going to know, it's people like me at are firm. Um, okay. Let's see here. Um, uh, oh, we are near the top of the hour. Let we got about
0: start... six minutes, though. We got about six minutes because we okay. started a couple minutes late, so it's okay.
1: So, um, let me do, actually, let's do a couple on the personal technology one. Uh, the first one is super interesting. Uh, T-Mobile, uh, had a, uh, an uncarrier announcement today, which is their kind of marketing speak for something new. It wasn't anything, um, all that, uh, interesting. Um, 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 other than uh, there's something here regards to connectivity, right? And it's a topic that I'm very interested in, uh, because I think there needs to be more competitors, um, around the United States as opposed to less in this space because it's going to decrease costs and increase speed. Um, but T-Note you know, Mobile now offers, um, a 5G home internet, uh, a product where you can, for $50 a month, guaranteed forever. This is the, the price for this service forever and ever and ever. Um, uh, um, you can get a uh, 5g internet which essentially is a box in your house that uh, has a cell uh, uh, antenna on it and goes over the, the, the towers and creates an internet uh, experience for you. Um, and uh, I, if, if I didn't, if I wasn't satisfied right now with my cable connection, which is uh, 400 down and 20 up for $75 a month, I would seriously consider doing this. Um, or if I had terrible a wired internet in my neighborhood, but I've got a pretty good T-Mobile signal. I think this would be a very interesting uh, thing to have. Um, there's a 15 day free trial. They'll help you move away from um, your other broadband provider. If you have late or early uh, exit fees, up to $500 in that, there's a price lock at $50 a month. And if you happen to be one of T-Mobile's subscribers that uh, is at the Magenta Max level, uh, it's only $30 a month just to add this service on. And I imagine for some families, that would be, I mean, $30 extra a month might be just useful to have around your house, right, as a second option for Wi-Fi if you have enough people on it. Wow.
0: As someone who's going to be moving soon and looking at houses, I mean, my top choice would be to be in an AT&T fiber neighborhood. Yes. That is a great price, though. The two numbers that I don't see are what is the upstream as well as downstream. Yeah. It says it's going to be a hundred meg, but that's, I'm sure talking a hundred megs down our AT&T fiber is a 300, eight, uh, 300 synchronous connection, 300 up 300 down. That actually makes a difference when I'm uploading podcasts. Um, you know, when we were with Cox, we had a foul for a while. We have thousand down, but only 30 up. They wouldn't give us any more than that. And my other question is a quota question in the wireless world. We've seen quotas, um, with respect to how much like tethering data, five gigs used to be the limit. This'll be something like, uh, no, no, this will happen, but like the, with the grandkids someday we well, back in my day, we could only have five gigs of data on the, on the hotspot. Um, you know, with 5g speeds, you know, just like everything else getting faster and, and, you know, 4k web streams and all these things um, you can use data a lot faster. So I am very interested in that personally, but I'm going to be interested to ask what the upstream as well as downstream is. And then if there is a quota monthly in terms of how much total, you know, bandwidth you're allowed, that's, that's an exciting announcement and especially interesting that they're going to, have this f- for life thing that kind of makes you say, okay, is it something I want to jump on now? Cause it won't be offered forever. And then I can keep it and have it grandfathered. Cause that, that does seem like a great price, especially as a subscriber. Yeah, totally. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, one more question to, to grab maybe before we, uh, call it quits. Let's see. I'll, I'll
1: just give a quick statistic. Cause it was interesting to me. The Verge reported that, uh, Wordle's, Uh, uh, purchased by the New York times has brought them tens of millions of new users. So for the cranks in the world that wondered why does the New York times want wordle? And by the way, there's not even any advertising on the Wordle uh, website. It's because they now have tens of billions of new users that they didn't before. So cheers to New York times for spotting a gem.
0: Tens of millions. Wow. All right. Well, speaking of gems, Doctor Knifer, what would you have for us as a geek of the week this week as we wrap up?
1: Yeah, this one was really interesting to me, and it's from our friend Kevin Toefel over at About Chromebooks. But basically, there is an internal Chrome operating system engagement metric uh, that you can get um, either on Chrome OS, and I also know that it works in the Chrome browser. And all you need to do is open up to a new tab and uh, type in Chrome colon backslash backslash site dash engagement backslash, and it will show you a report um, that is your site engagement. So to give you an example of the report for me, um, hold on, I need to copy and paste, copy paste, give you an idea of what sites that I uh, access the most Uh, my top 10 um, uh, as of late includes eBay, Twitter, Gmail, Google, Amazon, Facebook. Uh, Google Docs, which I'm 99% sure is uh, the document for EdTech SR. uh And right after that, by the way, is StreamYard. So that tells you that I'm probably correct there. And then there's a, um, a cool router hacking uh, a site called Wireless Joint that I like reading. And then 9to5Google. Um, so, you know, it's a legit report looking at your history to kind of give you a sense of where you're spending most of your time percentage-wise um, on your machine.
0: And I have some statistics. Uh, we have talked and will, after I give my geeks of the week, I've talked about 16 different web links tonight, but there are 12 that we did not talk about. So um, there you go. It's, it's helpful to be highlighting those. My geek of the week, quickly, I'm going to do two. Um, I have another podcast up. Oh my gosh. Uh, this is actually a recording of the presentation that I gave yesterday was Tuesday uh, in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Originally, I had titled this, which I, I really like this title, um, how to talk about how to teach about conspiracy theories without getting fired. <clears throat> but there were some folks that thought that. <laughs> so it ended up being uh, teaching about conspiracy theories and media literacy. But uh, you can check out that audio and those slides. And um, if you're at all interested in media literacy, then there's probably something for you in that podcast. And then... Dr. Knifer, this is my mind-blowing geek of the week, and I don't have one of these very often. Have you heard, sir, before of the Google Teachable Machine website? Do you know about this? No. I'm going to drop my tweet in. In this session at Atlas on Monday, which was about implicit bias, I created an algorithm using visual AI that identifies whether you're holding up one, two, three, four, or five fingers. And I trained it with hundreds of images using my webcam. And one of the things that the folks running this workshop were pointing out is that having students use this kind of a tool really does help them understand the idea of implicit bias and how important a large data set is and what a representative sample is and why you might or might not be able to uh, you know, take a, a tool that you're creating like this and use it differently. We actually have high school students who have just developed and they're showing it this week to the uh, the principal. We call him the the director of our our primary division, which is pre-K and K. They've written the code to take pictures of the license plates of parents as they come on campus, cross reference it to the database and then show the teacher in the classroom whose parents are in the carpool line so they can send the kids outside. High school students have done that with A.I., that is a free tool from Google, ladies and gentlemen. And it's just like my mind. I, it doesn't happen that often. because of I haven't been to face to face conferences for a while, but even when I go, <laughs> it's not that often that my mind is blown. And the guy, I was getting pretty excited sitting on the front row and they were like, is this good? You like, I'm like, this is incredible. So.
1: Well, I need to add to that. If you need any evidence that, that AI needs some serious discussions, it's the power of that tool that Google's just posting for people for free to play with.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. But some really, uh, you know, creative ways we can think about using it and then kids actually using AI and training the algorithm and, and, and it's, it's really, it's really, really cool. There's, I'm going to, I'll be developing some lessons in the year to come, I predict with that tool. So Dr. Neifer, when you're not here helping us become more illuminated on the topics of educational technology, where can people find you?
1: Well, I haven't left Twitter yet, so find me there at Tech Teach. What about you, sir?
0: I'm only on Macedon, so just come find me there. <laughs> no, uh, com slash after. Yes, I am on Macedon, and I've been posting a bit more. It's a bit of a renaissance over on Macedon because people are concerned that Elon may do some crazy things to Twitter. But I'm W Fryer on Twitter. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We are an almost weekly podcast coming to you on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Uh, no, you're 8 p.m.? Yeah, no. What are you? Yeah, 8 p.m. Yeah, you're you're 8 p.m. Mountain. Okay, yeah. and I'm not in I'm not in Eastern time yet. I'm at 9 p.m. Uh, Central time, and we are located on the web at edtechsr.com. You can follow us on Twitter at edtechsr. We invite you to subscribe to our Substack, which you can find at edtechsr.substack.com. But you can also find us on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube. Generally, we're getting our shows published. Because we sometimes have a Slacker team that's doing this work uh, a a couple days after our show. But the cool thing about StreamYard, which is our platform we use, is it immediately streams to both Facebook and YouTube, and those are automatically archived. And hopefully, you know, Jason and I don't misspeak because we'd have to go in and delete the show or something else if we, you know, said something we regretted. And I don't think we've actually done that in a really long time. Not to say we need, you know, knock on wood. So we want to thank you for tuning in. Encourage you to uh, reach out to us. Let us know. You can tweet to us at our uh, individual Twitter handles or at EdTechSR, which we'll probably see at some point, although maybe not as fast. And we will be gone next week on uh, May, May the 11th. But Google I.O. will be happening and we will uh, be back here in two weeks. So until then, we encourage you to stay savvy. Stay safe and share the EdTech Situation Room because we love sharing podcasts and we know that this is a great way to help other people get connected and learn hopefully new and valuable things and also connect to the community. So until next time, take care. Good night.